I'm Stephen Wright and this is a Mail Plus True Crime Special, an interview with the legendary BBC radio presenter Paul Gambaccini about his seven-year legal battle with the Metropolitan Police after he was arrested and falsely accused of sexual abuse as part of Operation Utree, the Scotland Yard inquiry set up in the wake of the Jimmy Savile scandal. Paul has said that the allegations had a catastrophic effect on his life after the force allowed him to be identified by publishing his age and the location of his home, leading to him being shunned by friends and colleagues and even taken off air for a year by the BBC. Now he's won substantial damages and legal costs off the Met and, more importantly for him, an apology. But why did it happen? How did it happen? He joins me now to discuss his marathon quest for justice. Paul Gambaccini, you had an exemplary career in broadcasting, uh, a man of good character and unquestionable integrity. But that counted for nothing seven years ago this week when Scotland Yard raided your home over false sex abuse allegations. What do you recall of that day? I recall a great deal of that day because uh, nothing that happened that day has happened on any other day in my life. Uh, What happened was that I heard the doorbell going uh, at what I thought was 4.38 in the morning. I looked at my digital clock. It said 4.38. On the police record, it says, I think, 5.30. But nonetheless, it was in the hours of darkness, and I was awakened. And uh, I had warned my lawyer, my PA, and my husband not to be surprised if the police came for me, because I was U-Tree 15. There had already been 14 people arrested, Uh, I knew the uh, type of target by this point, and I'm sure some of the people listening who were paying attention during that period will remember that show business figures who were prominent in the 70s and 80s were being targeted, particularly Radio 1 DJs. There I am, uh, and I had thought, well, you know, because I had gone on to two television programs... The first was Breakfast Time with Lorraine Kelly. And they had asked me on because they were going to review the week's television programs, one of which was the ITV expose of Jimmy Savile. And since I had been on the same network as him, that's a bit of a tenuous connection, but nonetheless, most people hadn't been on the same network as him. They thought I might be in a fit state to comment. So I went on, and uh, they showed a clip from the show, and Lorraine said to me, uh, well, what do you think of that? And I just casually said, I've been waiting for the story to come out for 30 years. Because I had been waiting for the story to come out for 30 years. And there were quotes from it which made the front pages of some of the papers the next day. And then uh, the Panorama program did a roundup of the situation, and I appeared on that as well. So what happened next? Fast forward a couple of months, and I'm looking at the BBC website, and there is a report that the Metropolitan Police have opened an investigation called Operation Utree, 
and they are inviting the public to accuse celebrities saying you will be believed. Uh, just get in contact, make an accusation against a celebrity, and you will be believed. Well, my heart sank instantly because I thought, oh, my gosh, all it takes is one person to put two and two together and come up with five. I was in the newspaper headlines in the same phrase as Savile, and maybe some deranged individual will associate us. Well, guess what happened? What evidence did the officers from the Met have to come to your flat very early in the morning and arrest you? In my round of disclosure that was given to me, there were statements taken from my original accuser, his fiance, and his best friend from the time period, who uh, was subsequently interviewed by the police on his recommendation, a person with whom he had had recent telephonic contact, to justify my arrest. And this person claimed that he'd been watching TV, saw this broadcast, and said, how dare he say this about Jimmy Savile when he did it to me? Now, his fiancée was startled to hear this. She'd never heard him mention my name, even though he was a serial unsuccessful accuser and a serial drug abuser. And he um, made a statement to the Metropolitan Police. The man was seriously distressed. It was obvious from reading it that this certainly could not be believed because there were other things in it that really could not be believed. And also he made factual errors, as well as the fact that he was in the wrong decade. I hadn't even begun having full sexual relationships with men. So he was actually claiming to have taken my virginity, though he didn't know this. Uh, so I, I get his statement and his uh, fiancé's statement and uh, she, uh, and then the statement from his best friend mm. who uh, said uh, he was brought in five months after the police were getting nowhere. Mm. I didn't know this was happening even. And he said, well, yes, uh, he did it to me too. And when asked if I had a distinguishing physical characteristic, twice said I had the flesh color of a lightly skinned Asian. Well, one of my best friends is a lightly skinned Asian. And he says, Paul, you just don't measure up. The police raided your home, and it's it's bizarre, isn't it? Well, it is bizarre, and uh, f for a very good reason. In neither statement was there a reference to a single physical object. There wasn't even, he gave me a signed photo. No scribbled telephone number. No letter, as was found in the Max Clifford and Ralph Harris cases. Nothing. There wasn't a reference to a single physical object. So what could they have been looking for? And the answer is, whether the search warrant was legal or not, nothing. It was a trawl. They were hoping to find something which might be incriminating, but they weren't looking for anything particular. At what moment did you realise that the police were coming into your property? Did you have any advance warning or that he doesn't knock on the door. They had gone into the lobby of, of the apartment building on which I live uh, on the 12th floor. And they had said to the concierge, because there is an overnight concierge, uh, we are going up to Mr. Gambaccini's apartment. Uh, can you let us in? So that he let them in. And so they rang on my doorbell without any warning whatsoever. 
I didn't know that in this country you can be arrested on no evidence whatsoever. I, I really did not know that. I thought there had to be something on the basis of which they were arresting you. But, as was said to Cliff Richard, uh, when he uh, was being interviewed, he said, you have no evidence. And the South Yorkshire police said, the accusation is the evidence. Uh, to which I say to Keir Starmer and Bernard Hogan Howe and Alison Saunders and Cressida Dick, an accusation is not evidence. It's an accusation. What were your feelings at the moment you were formally arrested, Paul? Here we go. We're into the system. Now it begins. I had known some of the people who'd been arrested. So I knew that the Metropolitan Police were not very good on their details in Operation Utree. And of course, uh, I learned that they made the Keystone Cops look like the SAS. And of course, during the, the raid on your home, they took away a lot of objects, a lot of items, didn't they? But some people might be surprised by the sort of items the police took away. Well, yes, they took bagfuls of stuff, but because they weren't looking for anything in particular, they just took tons of stuff. Uh, one of the things that really floored me was the 1969 press release from my college radio station in New Hampshire announcing that I had been chosen the general manager of the radio station. Well, A... Uh, the accusations did not cover the 60s, and of course they did not cover New Hampshire. So why did they bother to take that? They also took tons of CDs and videos. Well, of course, we know that they were hoping to find some porn, but in fact what they were were copies of my radio and television programs. So I was envisioning some police officers spending hours watching videos of Mark Knopfler and other people that I had interviewed on television. The whole thing was so farcical, you had to live through it to believe it could be possible. So after the police raided your home, you... Uh were given an opportunity to have some breakfast, I believe, uh, and then you were taken to the police station. <laughs> yes, this was quite funny. Uh, although I did present myself at the front door in a presentable fashion, nonetheless, uh, I uh, got dressed to be taken to the police station. I uh, said, uh, can I shave? And they said, no. I said, can I have orange juice and croissant? And they said, yes. The canteen food isn't very good. So they stood by while I pressed my orange juice and heated up my croissant. And then I was taken to the police station. I was taken in an unmarked car by uh, police officers who were in plain clothes. At that moment when you were arrested and taken to the police station, were you scared? I was more angry than I was scared. I was furious. How could they misrepresent history? How could they rewrite history? How could they do this to me when I had led a life that did not include drink, drugs, and cigarettes? And uh, in a time period when I hadn't even started, as I said, having that type of sexual relations. Now, you ask, was it humiliating for me to be taken to the police station? No, because at the moment, you're not feeling anything other than annoyance, anger, and curiosity. What is this about? You have to remember, this was before we were saved by print journalists, including your fine self. 
I did think, however, as I sat there for a couple of hours in a cell, and you had to because, uh, of course, your solicitor is not contactable at six in the morning, but I did think they're going to regret this. You, of course, have said in the past you didn't know who your accusers were or you certainly didn't recognise their names. Their names are protected by anonymity. But in broad terms, how would you describe them and the the allegations they made against you? It's uh, quite true that, as you say, by British law, false accusers even maliciously false accusers, are granted anonymity for life. So I cannot tell you the names of my accusers, which are common names anyway. It's not like my own name, which is the only one in this country. There must be hundreds of people who have these names. However, I had never known anyone who had those names. Well, it's quite possible I would have met one or both of these people, particularly since they lived within walking distance of my apartment. So I might have passed them in the street or met them in a shop, or we might even have attended the same party at some point. I don't know. But I certainly did not know their names, and nothing that transpired in their fictitious accounts ever happened. This all boils down to the fact that your name got into the public domain very quickly, didn't it? And that was a devastating blow because the BBC took you off the airwaves pretty quickly as soon as your name was out there. Yes. At the time I was arrested, I was still a team player. Remember, I had been on the BBC for 40 years. And uh, I said, well, I, I, so I called my executive producer at Radio 2 and I said to him, well, I've, I've been arrested. And I thought, you should know. And he said, well, I'll call you back. And he called me back the next morning. And he said, it has been decided that you can stay on air as long as you were not named. But the minute you're named, you will come off. And we have to prepare a statement to that effect. And we would like you to say that you are coming off air voluntarily. Can you do that? And I thought, well... Actually, in the immediate short term, it's better that I don't draw attention to myself because I knew that one of the characteristics of the witch hunt were the uh, bandwagoners, as I called them. The people who, once they knew the identity of someone to target with accusations, would accuse them. And we had seen that with uh, some of the earlier cases. When someone was arrested and publicized, more people than accused them. And, of course, I knew there are a lot of, and I use the word again, distressed individuals, uh, who would like to accuse someone and blame them for the failure of their lives. Now, this is all incidental, and I, I must make this very clear, to the genuine problem of sex abuse, which I thought I was addressing when I went on Lorraine Kelly and uh, defended abused women against Jimmy Savile. But it turns out there were two scandals running simultaneously, uh, one of which was the abuse of women, and then the other one, which is false allegations. And the police were not interested in false allegations, and at least the Met have never prosecuted any of the false accusers from the witch hunt. Even the notorious Carl Beach was prosecuted by another police service, and that was after actions by two of the falsely accused in Operation Midland. So the police 
Cosset and protect their precious false accusers without whom they cannot conduct a witch hunt. And of course, you were on bail for 12 months, weren't you, following your arrest, uh, bailed or rebailed a further six times after you were initially detained. That must have been really frustrating for you because you were maintaining your innocence. You wanted to get on with your life, but you, you didn't have a job and you were in limbo. Well, it wasn't just that I was maintaining my innocence. I knew my innocence. I mean, if you, I wanted to say to Bernard Hogan Howe, Bernie, I hope you realize you can't have sex with someone unless you know them. Unless you've met someone, you cannot have sex with them. And uh, the Metropolitan Police had not even established that I'd ever met these two people. Uh, so the fault does not lie with the distressed accusers who need psychiatric attention. The fault lies with the police who take them seriously, even though their accounts are full of falsehoods and are manifestly so. Now, interestingly enough, when I said to one of my Utree officers when it was over, because uh, two of them did come around, I realized it was to offer a veiled apology or at least confirmation that I had been wronged. And I said, why did you believe this guy? And he said, well, if you'd been there, you would have believed him too. And I thought, no, I wouldn't have. <laughs> he was obviously spewing out falsehoods. For one thing, uh, my distinguishing physical characteristic in the time period at issue was not my Asian flesh, but the fact that I had a beard. And uh, this is uh, captured for history on Radio 1 calendars. And I thought, if this comes to a trial, I'll just go in and show these Radio 1 calendars. It's sad that we had to get that deep into preparation for possible alternative futures. But as I said to Cliff when he called me and said, am I going mad? I am thinking of possible scenarios with a judge. And I said, Cliff, you are not going mad. You're a professional. You're rehearsing. You're rehearsing what would happen if this should come to pass. And, of course, we all had to think about, well, what if we did have to go to trial? Well, I, one of the things I would have done is show these radio and calendars with a beard. But this is all stuff that the police should have stopped at square one because all of these malicious false accusers were making howling factual errors. Paul, you, you were exonerated formally in October 2014, uh, a year after you were arrested. When did you decide to sue the Metropolitan Police and why? What was the purpose of your legal action? I was asked immediately, are you going to sue the police? And I said, no, the odds are stacked in their favour. But, first of all, when I did get my uh, NFA, no further action... One month later, I was listening to the Today program, and John Humphreys was interviewing Bernard Hogan Howe, and he asked him to comment by name on my case. And Hogan Howe refused to mention me or comment on my case and changed the subject. And then a month later, I saw Hogan Howe before the Home Affairs Select Committee on Parliamentary TV. The chair asked him to comment on my case by name. He would not, would not mention my name, and changed the subject. Another disbelieving MP from another party then asked him to comment on my case by name. He refused and changed the subject. And I thought, I get it. He's never going to mention my name. He's never going to acknowledge my existence. He's going to pretend this never happened. 
And indeed, when uh, Sir Richard Enriquez submitted his report, I received emails from Lady Britain and Harvey Proctor saying, make sure you get your chapter of the Enriquez report. It's going to be released on American Election Day, a good day to bury bad news. I had not been informed, even though I'd been interviewed by Sir Richard, and I thought, I must be in this report. And Lady Britain told me uh, I should contact his assistant, and she did confirm to me that, yes, I am in the report. So I wrote to uh, the head of professionalism asking for a copy of my chapter, and the uh, part of the report that was going to be released to the press. Only the conclusions were released to the press. And my chapter, which is chapter six, was never even acknowledged to exist. In the end, with all of the fuss over Operation Midland, I believe chapters one through three were released. I don't even know who chapters four and five are or how many chapters there were in total. Well, I read my heavily redacted chapter, which contained so many black lines it could hang in the Tate Modern as a piece of modern art. And there it said that in month seven of my 12-month bail period, my original accuser had ceased cooperating with the police and in month nine had withdrawn and I was never told. And I was kept on bail for remaining three months. At that point, the dots connected themselves because I remembered Leon Britton was allowed to die thinking he was still under suspicion when he was not. Lady Bramall was allowed to die thinking her husband was still under suspicion when he was not. Jim Davidson was told about his no further action, not by the police, but by a newspaper. And I realized it is the custom, if not the actual policy, of the Metropolitan Police of Bernard Hogan Howe not to let their innocent suspects know their cases are over. Can I just ask you, in terms of the misuse of information, private information, your legal action all came came down to that, didn't it, really? That the police effectively helped identify you to the public. Yes, I always draw the uh, parallel with Al Capone. You'd love to get him for organized crime and the St. Valentine's Day massacre, but you can't, so you get him on what you can get him for, income tax. And I got the CPS on what I could get them on, And we won. With the Met, we had to find the legal point that we could get them on. You can't say, I sue you because you're sadistic and stupid. You're never going to win a case like that. Uh, But uh, this point about the uh, misuse of private information had been mentioned by Sir Richard Enriquez in his Enriquez report which had been accepted by the Metropolitan Police. Therefore, they had accepted that they'd done what Sir Richard had said they had done. Therefore, they had no case to defend, and that's what we got them on. And you have secured an apology, uh, significant, substantial damages, and your legal costs from the Metropolitan Police. They've caved in, haven't they? How do you feel about that, getting an apology? We we have one. Well, that's what I was holding out for. After that behavior by Bernard Hogan Howe, I thought, okay, I have to get an apology. If he had answered John Humphreys differently on the Today program, if he had said, yes, we got the Gambaccini case wrong and we apologize, that would have been it. 
No legal action. But after the Enriquez report, I thought no man can acquiesce in his own attempted destruction. And so I thought, I have to take action. I have no choice. This is the position that Cliff and Harvey found themselves in. It's the position I found myself in. Bernard Hogan Howe forced me to sue the Metropolitan Police. Cressida Dick did not repair the damage. This case has gone on for three and a half years. It has been seven years that I have been fighting for justice from the Metropolitan Police. And this week, we have attained it. And you must feel vindicated. You've got damages, legal costs, apologies from the CPS and the Met. How about a public apology from the BBC? The BBC, the organisation which took you off air for many, many months. Do you think you deserve one? As Meatloaf once sang, two out of three ain't bad, but that still leaves a third. And uh, it isn't over, as Adele once sang. For me, it isn't over. And for all of us, it isn't over. The BBC uh, were so arrogant, so condescending. They thought they could get away with doing us harm, colluding deeply with the police, throwing their veteran stars overboard for public relations purposes. But it's just that uh, we haven't gotten around to them yet. Uh, we've had a bigger fish to fry. So it's a case of watch this space. A case of watch this space, yeah. Paul Gambaccini, thank you very much for talking to the Mail True Crime Podcast. You've been listening to a Mail Plus True Crime special with me, Stephen Wright. <laughs>